Hello and welcome to Playback Daily with me, Louise Herity. It's good to be back with another roundup of some of today's radio highlights. And here's what's coming up. Lo and behold, within two months of being in London, I fell flat on my face. And this is not a metaphor. This is literal. You fell. Didn't comply with directions to stop or permit the Irish authorities to board, but tried to flee by sailing towards international waters. Naval officers on board at the DLE, William Butler Yates, then fired a number of shots, warning shots, at the container ship. About 80% of us will experience back pain at some stage. And I imagine it's probably nearly 100%, really. It's so common that it's nearly considered a normal um, human part of the normal human experience or condition. Well, the big talking point of today, aside from Storm Agnes, was the Irish Naval Service's seizure of a bulk carrier ship off the coast of Cork yesterday. 2.2 tonnes of cocaine was recovered in the largest seizure in the history of the state. RTE crime correspondent Paul Reynolds took us through the operation on Morning Ireland. Yeah, Mary, it all began with the Guard of the National Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau, which received information and intelligence in relation to the movements and the drugs cargo on board the cargo ship, the MV Matthew, a Panamanian registered bulk cargo ship, which originated in South America, where the world's biggest cocaine cartels are based. The ship entered Irish waters off the southern coast in the last few days with drugs on board to transfer to a smaller boat. The transfer of drugs at sea is known as coopering, in itself a very dangerous procedure. The Guard, they believe that was due to happen, but didn't because the trawler ran aground on a sandbank off the coast of Wexford. The Guard and the Naval Service continued tracking the container ship. Uh, The Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau officers were on board the LE, William Butler Yates. The container ship was seen uh, and monitored circling in Irish waters, moving up along the coast from Cork, up to South Wicklow, and then back south again, apparently trying to rendezvous with the trawler, trying to contact the smaller boat uh, and the people on board, who by now were in Garda Custom. So a decision was then made uh, yesterday at the highest levels in the Garda and the Defence Forces to act. Ministers were briefed, including the Ministers of Defence and Justice. Government approval was given to enable the the Army Ranger Wing to deploy in Irish territorial waters the first time ever. The team was notified at 8 o'clock yesterday morning. They were ready by midday. They were on the water and the boat was intercepted at 20 to 1 yesterday afternoon. Now, along with the LE, LE William Butler Yates, the naval ship, the Defence forces deployed two AW139 helicopters, one CASA fixed-wing aircraft and one PC-12 fixed-wing aircraft. The container ship was tracked by both the Air Corps and the Naval Service and has been over the past number of days. It didn't comply with directions to stop or permit the Irish authorities to board, but tried to flee by sailing towards international waters. Naval officers on board the DLE William Butler Yates then fired a number of shots, warning shots, at the container ship. The specialist team from the Army Ranger Wing then deployed by helicopter onto the MV Matthew via fast rope insertion in what the Defence Forces describes as challenging conditions, and I think people who saw the footage uh, Mm. would see that. Uh, One helicopter hovered over the ship, the other provided armed cover as the uh, the specialist uh, military team abseiled onto the deck. The Rangers boarded the vessel, they took control they made it safe and they enabled officials uh, from the Naval Service, the Guard the National Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau 
and the revenue and customs service to then come on board. Now, the Taunishta, the Minister for Justice and the Chief of Staff, Lieutenant General Sean Clancy, have all commended the courage, discipline and professionalism of all those involved. The container ship was brought to Cork Harbour last night, where it now remains under armed guard this morning. It truly is a, a, an extraordinary story. Paul, how much is emerging or what's known at this stage about what they found when they landed on the deck of that ship? Well, at this stage, this is now a Garda operation. The Defence Forces act as an aid to the civil power. They secured the ship. The Garda investigation now continues with a view to a prosecution. Um, the ship in Cork Harbour uh, will be searched and forensically examined over the next few days. Uh, the Garda don't exactly know what's on board, but they say they have recovered a substantial haul of drugs. It is still to be quantified to establish how much there is, and also it needs to be assessed to determine the purity and establish a value. However, there is a suspicion at this stage that the could be as much as two tonnes of cocaine on board. Uh, that would be worth as much as €150 million, Euro, but that's not confirmed. Uh, there will be a briefing uh, for the media later this morning. Three men have been arrested, one on board the container ship, two others after they were rescued from the stricken trawler. They're, be, they're all being detained under Section 50 anti-gang legislation on suspicion of organised crime offences and can be questioned following court extensions for up to seven days. They're aged 60, 50 and 31. One is Iranian, the other two are English and, and Russian-Ukrainian and they're being held in Garda stations in Wexford. The intelligence which led to this seizure came in collaboration with the Maritime Analysis and Operations Centre in Lisbon, the National Crime Agency in the UK, the US Drug Enforcement Agency and the French Customs Service, the DNRED. However, the interception and the arrest was all an Irish operation conducted by the Joint Task Force, which comprised of all those uh, professionals, armed guard, the customs officials, naval service, army ranger wing. And even though they were operating in very treacherous and dangerous conditions yesterday, no one was hurt. Mm. Any idea, Paul, how long... Uh, they may have been tracking this ship as it made its way from South America. And how relevant that the trawler going aground in Wexford is to the decision to, to, to swoop onto that ship yesterday? Well, the, the trawler, we understand, or the, the container ship left um, South America in August. Uh, they have been tracking it for at least a week. Uh, the information and intelligence they had was in conjunction with a number of uh, European and US agencies. Uh, the head of the uh, Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau, uh, Justin Kelly, actually met uh, one of the senior officials of the DEA uh, just in the last number of weeks uh, and also was in Lisbon at the uh, Maritime Analysis Centre. So the information is quite recent. Uh, the uh, the tracking is quite recent as well. Uh, when the ship went uh, aground, um, the, when the trawler, the smaller boat, the trawler mm. went aground in Wexford, uh, the Gardaí still weren't sure whether the drugs had been uh, transferred or not. Uh, but both ships uh, had been tracked. Uh, and at this stage, the decision was made yesterday, uh, once the other two men were in custody, to pursue uh, the container ship because it was still in Irish waters uh, and try to get to the mothership to get to the source of the cocaine. All right. Will you stay with us, Paul, because I want to ask you a, a separate question in relation to the, the GRA and the, the Garda Commissioner in a moment. But to stay with this story, we're joined by Eugene Ryan, who's a retired Naval Service Commander. Eugene, good morning. Good morning. How are you And doing? you've been listening to Paul there giving us, if you like, the narrative account of how yesterday's events unfolded. Describe for me the role of the Navy, the Navy in an operation of this sort and when the Navy would have been brought on board or is the Navy the, the instigator of the intelligence? 
Well, firstly, the, the, the two operations I was involved in in 2007 and 2008, uh, the, the 2008 operation, uh, uh, Operation Seabite, was similar in that the drugs came through Venezuela uh, and were picked up off the coast of Venezuela. This ship came from Willemstad uh, in Curacao, which is off the coast of Venezuela. Uh, we knew in advance, uh, because of the intelligence given to us by MAOC, the Maritime Analysis and Operations Centre in Lisbon, and the Joint Interagency Task Force in Key West, that um, this vessel was coming, that the mm -hmm. Dances with Waves, the one I was involved in with, with, was coming towards Ireland. So about a month in advance, we knew. So we tracked her across the Atlantic for one month with satellite and aircraft, etc. This one may not have been known as long in advance, but I'd say the Navy knew about this over a week ago uh, because of the intelligence that was coming from Mayock. So would you expect that there was considerable planning ahead of time into all aspects of the execution of this operation? We, The Naval Service and the Defence Forces generally, including the Maritime Section of the Ranger Wing, uh, train about for this all the time. So we, had, we have set procedures that we go through when we have an operation like this coming our way. The first thing we do is we invoke the Joint Task Force. The Joint Task Force is Defence Forces, i.e. Navy in this case, uh, Garda Síochána, Customs Revenue. We get together, we start sharing intelligence, and we set up a headquarters, which in our case was in the naval base, and we work from there. So we do have procedures and they would be well versed in, in, in what to do and how to brief people. You've been described by Michael O'Sullivan from the Maritime Analysis Centre, former former director of it, as the unsung heroes, the Irish Navy, the unsung heroes of Europe. But we also heard from Cahal Berry earlier on on the programme that we have eight naval vessels in Cork Harbour, but we have crew for only two. And that must be a very sore point by for, 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 for retired commanders like yourself and for those who are currently serving, uh, trying to do the job they're trying to do. I listened to both uh, Michael, who I know well, and to Cahill, and both spoke very eloquently and correctly. I, and just one quick example. I was commander of fleet operations of the Naval Service for 15 years. When I joined the Navy as a cadet in 1972, there were approximately 350 personnel and 32 officers. When I retired 40 years later, the strength was 1,200 all ranks and eight operational ships. In my 11 years of retirement, I have seen the Navy being decimated to approximately 700 personnel and two operational ships, despite the Navy's fleet being the newest and best equipped we have ever had. Hundreds of millions of taxpayers' money is lying alongside, not being used due to personnel shortages. And at yes, the same time, it does hurt. Eugene, um, what can you say about the, the, the demands that are on the Navy in terms of the policing of our coast? It's simple, Mary. We, 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 the demands are in excess of what we can do. And it's no, no reflection on the professionalism or the goodwill or, or the, the spree de corps of the people that are in the Navy. I have great admiration for the people that are still serving. But if they're not being paid the money that they deserve, they, they will leave for, for better jobs. They have families to feed. I, it really does hurt me. I mean, what Cahill said um, recently um, when he was speaking um, before the, the uh, Eroctus Committee, mm -hmm. the, the Joint Committee on Foreign Affairs and Defence, he was absolutely right. The Garda Síochána on board the vessel yesterday 
when the vessel was firing at this at this uh, mothership, the Garda Síochána were on multiples of allowances that our people were on, and the naval people were the people doing the firing. There's no excuse for this. We've got to pay our people if our naval service is to exist. I can see it because I live in Cove. I can see it every single day. People coming to me saying they've just left the Navy after 30 years, after 28 years or whatever, because they need more money to, to pay a mortgage or whatever. One just final point as well you might speak to these semi-submersibles, these narco-subs that Cahal was talking about and I think it would be a surprise to people. We don't have the sonar to detect them. No, we don't. Uh, we At this present time, we don't. Um, we do need it. And not only do we need it for the, the, the uh, semi-submersibles, but we also need it to inspect our cables coming across the Atlantic off the Irish coast with internet for the rest of the world, or, or mm. Europe, etc. We just can't um, police that either. Um, but when MAOC was formed, we saw... Uh, the drug importation into Europe diminishing and it going into Africa. And we were able to work with the African authorities to try and stamp that out. But however, we discovered that these semi-submersibles were coming across the Atlantic unmanned and steered by GPS. We haven't had any of them in Ireland, but what we have had in Ireland is the ships, big ships like this one, with mm. attachments to their hull, attached by magnetic um, um attachments that are released at sea onto the bottom of the ocean off the Irish coast, broken open on a timer, stuff coming to the surface and vessels from the shore coming out to pick up the stuff and bring it ashore. It happened recently in Donegal. Okay. So semi-submersibles and these little torpedo attachments underneath ships are happening all the time. In fact, our naval diving unit uh, searches ships in Cork Harbour regularly for, for attachments okay. like this. Uh, so let people know, let people should know that drugs are coming in constantly and we need to be able to get more ships, more than one ship. We had only one ship on this operation mm -hmm. on the Dances with Waves, which was a yacht. I had three ships working on that. And that was back in, in 2008. Eugene Ryan, retired Naval Service Commander, talking to Mary Wilson there on today's Morning Ireland. There was another ship being discussed on Radio 1 earlier and 111 years after its maiden voyage, Claire Byrne wondered why the Titanic continues to fascinate people. Journalist and author Senan Maloney, writer of multiple books about the Titanic, gave his thoughts. What sparked your own interest in the Titanic? Well, uh, discovering this extraordinary story in the, in the first place, I had been a small boy, maybe, maybe about 10, and I was reading uh, comics like Wizard and Chips and The Victor. And my parents, I think, uh, thought it would be better to have some improving magazines. So one of those that they uh, they got for us, myself and my brothers, was uh, one called Look and Learn. And at the very first uh, um, edition we got had a big feature about this enormous vessel, the largest moving object ever created by the hand of man. And then it was thrown away on its uh, on its maiden voyage. And even as a small boy, I remember thinking that this was monumental foolishness to lose a ten million dollar ship mm -hmm. against a frozen rock in the middle of the uh, of, of the Atlantic. So that was my first interest in it. Little and did your little did your parents know what they were starting. 
<laughs> exactly, yeah. So then I started reading whatever I could about it, and, you know, including some landmark books and uh, reportage and so on. And then when it was discovered in 1985 uh, at the bottom of the, uh, the Atlantic by Dr. Robert Ballard and the French team, um, it blew me away because it was like, uh, it was like legend made concrete reality. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and even then, you know, Titanic, authentic Titanic memorabilia was uh, selling relatively cheap. It took, it took quite a long while and I was starting to collect in that period and uh, it took the, the James Cameron blockbuster movie to send everything skyrocketing, you know, and um, prices now show no signs of slowing down. In fact, there's um. There's a, a menu from the the Queenstown stop. The uh, most people know that the Titanic stopped at Queenstown on Thursday, the 11th of April, 1912. And next month, um, a first class menu uh, from April the 11th is is going for auction in in Britain. And it was recovered from a body, I'm afraid, um, that was pulled from the ocean by by search ships. But the estimate on on that uh, menu is. Uh, Seventy to eighty thousand euros. Wow, you won't mm. be buying that, will you, Senan? Will you be in for that no, one? But <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice? <laughs> I, I can, I can tell you some of the uh, the things that are on it, though. I mean, you could have had uh, in April the eleventh, nineteen twelve. If you were in first class and you were paying about a thousand dollars at that time for a basic um, first class cabin to rub shoulders with uh, with Madeleine Astor and and JJ and unsinkable Molly Brown. You could have enjoyed tornadoes of beef a la Victoria, spring lamb, mint sauce, um, sirloin of beef with horseradish cream, green peas, puree, um, mallard duck with port wine sauce, Victoria pudding. You know, the list goes on and on. Lovely. Very nice. Sounds lovely. Um, You said that you began collecting memorabilia early on when it wasn't that expensive. Was that in the late 80s, early 90s? No, that was from the discovery of the wreck in in eighty five, which is a long time ago now. You know, and I w- I'm still chiefly interested in paper. You know, so um, um, some newspapers from the time, some uh, original m- magazines, and so on. I have a Marconi Telegraph chart, which is uh, from uh, April nineteen twelve, which shows all the ships that were crisscrossing the Atlantic at that time. I mean, the Atlantic is now completely empty compared to those days. But the wireless people would um, would pick up this chart so that they would know from the intersections of the of the ship's lines of crossing uh, which ships were likely to be in close contact, you know. And very often these were these were scrapped after a voyage, but they just had them as a ready reckoner, you know. So yes. I've one from April 1912, which is which is nice. A few other bits and pieces, you know. And people might remember in 2017 when you wrote about the coal fire on board mm. that caused an international media. Storm. You Frenzy. were on everywhere, yeah. weren't you? Will you remind That's us right. about that? <laughs> yeah, we had we had satellite broadcasting uh, vans from the states outside the house. Um, the reason was it, it aired in in early January uh, in in 2017, and it was just the dichotomy of fire versus ice. The was, it's a fact that there was a fire on board the uh, on board the Titanic from the moment she sailed from Belfast, and it all goes back to actually a coal strike in. In England, the first ever national coal strike, um, organised by the by the pit unions, uh, which brought the government to its knees, and they eventually caved in. But what this meant was, at the time of sailing, the White Star Line operators of the of the, of the Titanic were faced with either cancelling the maiden voyage to great uh, loss of prestige, or else 
trying to cannibalise um, coal from their other ships and uh, importing coal from anywhere they could get it. So one of the funny things about coal is that it's like um, it's like uh, bringing together your wider family and sometimes you have fractious cousins and so on and they can be fighting the car park, you know. So this is what happens when you mix French coal or Scottish coal or Welsh coal and um, you can have spontaneous combustion. Um, and the bunker uh, in which this uh, spontaneous fire broke out was about uh, three stories deep. It's the size of a house and they... Uh, they had no idea where it was located, and um, all this was given in evidence, by the way. So it's not a it's not a theory. It was it was confirmed by the um, managing director to the British inquiry, and they had a layover in Southampton where they tried to get the fire out. Then they sailed, and then the ship mysteriously stopped for half an hour um, out in in Southampton Water, which is a very little remarked upon um, detail of the maiden voyage. And they were presumably trying to figure out what to do about it at that stage. And later on, even in Queenstown, there was a uh, there was a conference in the managing director's um, suite, J. Bruce Ismay, who later retired to Connemara. He controversially survived the sinking. He called up the chief engineer and they had a discussion. And he disclosed this fact on... Um, uh, to the American inquiry when he was still shaken and traumatised. But, of course, it was all glossed over later by the time the lawyers had, had got to him. The question is, why on earth would the managing director have a conference with the uh, with the chief engineer? I mean, it has to do with coal consumption and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have a burning fire, it's, it, you know, it's burning your fuel, you know? So they had they had little coal to begin with because of the coal strike, and there were implications here. So uh, at, at most, one could suggest that the... the um, the coal fire, which was on the starboard side, in the exact place where the iceberg struck, that it, that it weakened a, um, a forward bulkhead and hastened the sinking. Certainly, um, the ship was listing uh, to the uh, to the port side because they were digging out coal from this uh, starboard side forward bunker, and that's attested to by in in various books um, published soon after the event. And uh, so the Titanic was lifting our starboard side, if you like, in, in an unprotected area because the coal had been dug out and fed into the bunkers. That's the quickest way to get rid of burning coal. And the ship was therefore going at a heightened speed than she had promised to do. And also, if you think about it, if you're, if you're losing uh, coal and you're, you're going faster than you need to and you're not sure you've got enough coal in the first place, it kind of explains why the ship never diverted south when she had all these ice warnings. That's one of the great puzzles um, of the Titanic mystery, and it goes some way to, ex- to explaining that. So th- they took a risk and they, m- they made a run for it through the minefield of ice ahead of them. That's extraordinary. And so that now is accepted that the fire had an impact on the tragedy that happened. It's hard to know because, you know, the that whole side of the ship is is um buried deep in the um in the sediment of the of the North Atlantic now. So we can't really get we're gonna to have to wait for some heightened form of X-ray or something to mm. to see, you know, inside and test the level of damage. Very interestingly, after this um documentary came out in twenty seventeen, n- nearly two years later, a chap walked into the uh the Antiques Roadshow and was broadcast in 2019 from Hampshire, uh, Salisbury in Hampshire. And he had a he had a disc from the bulkhead that he said was cut out in order to to feed um, hoses onto onto this particular bunker. And he was holding it up in front of astonished experts. 
you know, on the Antiques Roadshow, and because his father had been involved, sorry, his grandfather had been involved with Harland and Wolf, who had a repair shop in Southampton. His story completely hanged together. Isn't that something? Um, I mentioned the mm-hmm. Titan submersible uh, sending over yeah. the, the summer. You know, that tragic irony of people sure. travelling to witness a fatal shipwreck becoming victims of a fatal shipwreck. What impact has that had and is it likely to have on this whole industry that sprung up around the site itself? Yes, well, first of all, I want to uh, extend, uh, obviously, condolences again to the family of P.H. Nargile in particular, who was the uh, Mr. Titanic, he was called, and he has family over here, including a, a young grandson who attends school in Cork, and he has uh, he has two adult children here in Ireland. Um, and he was the, one of the most noble and gentle uh, of men, and he was lost, of course, with, with four of us two Pakistanis, a father and son, a British billionaire, and Stockton Rush, who was the owner of the Titan. Now, the implications for that are huge, of course, insofar as there was a small um, body of of people who would go down as tourists to the Titanic wreck, a dangerous thing to do uh, in in the first place. However, I mean, there was even an American couple that got married uh, on the wreck, if you can believe it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's uh, it's one one way of keeping the guest list down clear, I guess. Um, And... uh, (laughs) But now uh, I think Titanic tourism is going to be very badly uh, impacted by this because it, po- it brings home the risk to people, even if the uh, Ocean Gate operation was a little bit uh, chewing gum and string. Um, uh, so, uh, so so, that is going to be a hammer blow, I think. And also now the US government is getting more aggressive about the fact that there are treaties uh, signed preserving the wreck. And there's a, there's a legal action at the moment to try and, by the US government, to try and Pro, uh, prevent the uh, the Salvers or MST Incorporated from going there uh, on an ex- expedition next year and cutting into the wreck and trying to retrieve the wireless uh, telegraph machine that was used to send out the SOS. That may be stopped now as a result of that legal action by the, exactly. the Americans. Author Senan Maloney on today with Claire Byrne. To text or not to text on the nine o'clock show this morning, host Brendan Courtney was talking about phone etiquette. Phone etiquette, new phone etiquette. Should you text before calling? Phone expert explained the new rules, including no voicemails. So the Washington Post has written an article which explains, tells us that phone calls have been around for 147 years. The iPhone has been around for 16 years and FaceTime video voicemails have only been around for about a week. (laughs) which is interesting. I'm sure they're just being funny. Uh, it does list a new set of rules, but it, they do go back to that. It's it's a generational thing and, and I can't help but notice that. Um, their number one rule now when it comes to phone etiquette is don't leave a voicemail. Uh, I think we, you know, they're saying voicemails are artefacts uh, and there's no need for them now that we have text messaging. Um I kind of, I kind of agree. Do you listen to voicemails? I, I really struggle with listening to voicemails. Uh, text before calling. I, uh, Annie Jen, millennials from de- millennials down, do not like a cold call. I've been told this from nephews, my brother. Text before calling. They get, they find, <laughs> they warn that they find it stressful if you just call out of the blue. And I have a good friend, Andrea, who if I ring and she's only in her thirties, who go, oh, what have I done? But like, no, just calling to say hello. So text before call calling uh, and you don't need to answer the phone 
Well, we get that from anybody under 35 who never answers the phone. You don't actually sound, you don't need to answer the phone. Just because someone is calling you out of the blue does not mean you have to pick up. If you're in a restaurant or using the bathroom or in a meeting, mute the call and get back to them at a convenient time. Good idea. Uh, my really, uh, I have a really bugbear with this. If you say climb a mountain and it's snowing and you're destroyed with snow and cold and you walk into a hotel and you say, please help me. And as you approach the reception, the phone rings and the receptionist ignores you. Who You're there in real life, in a human being. And they go, just one second. Hello, you know, the, the Vermont Hotel. You're like, no, I'm here in real person. So you don't always have to answer the phone. And in fact, if someone's standing in front of you, I would say, hold off on the phone. I'm getting in with these rules now, I'm and I? I'm loving it. Um, I have a, one that is, I'm really, I'm directing this at my mother. Um, if someone doesn't answer your call, don't hang up and keep calling. <laughs> it's not 1975. I'm not upstairs. I didn't not hear the phone. The phone is in my pocket. Okay, ma'am? Just moving on from that one. Uh, use voicemails, as we said earlier on, judicious, judiciously. I can't even say that word. And here's the one that gets everyone talking. Don't use speakerphone in public. And this is an official Washington Post article, which we are going to assume are the new rules. Don't use speakerphones in public. Um, so do any of these strike a chord with you? Give us a little text. <laughs> 51551. But not, you know, if you're feeding your baby or <laughs> talking to a neighbour. Wait for a minute. Or you can email 9 at rte.ie, which you can also do conveniently from your smartphone. Um, the speakerphone in public, people holding the phone like it's a walkie-talkie. And it used to be just young people. But on the converse side, we were all saying, and my mother does it as well, for older people, maybe it's a hearing issue, I don't know, it's just easier than putting up to your ear. Um, they, my mum uses speakerphone all the time and I'm, I'm just going to come clean about this. She regularly hangs me. So I'll ring and say, hi, mum. She'll go, hi, you know, Mary, the neighbour's here. And I'll say, oh, don't tell her it's me. And you'll hear Mary in the background going, you're on speakerphone, love. <laughs> so stop using speakerphone when you're around people. Uh but then the message from the Washington Post is don't stop talking on the phone. Phone calls aren't dead. While hopping on the phone may be less common or involve more planning than it used to, it's still a wonderful way to communicate. Talking to a person in real time can strengthen relationships and improve mental health and lessen loneliness. So don't stop making calls. And later on the show, Brendan spoke to Waterford actor Katie Honan about how she turned an unfortunate event into something very positive. And then... Lo and behold, within two months of being in London, I fell flat on my face. And this is not a metaphor. This is literal. You fell. What happened? Yeah. So I went over to a friend's for a barbecue and I was in the garden and I took a turn on a step. And the way I fell, most of, if not all of, the impact went on my face. Um, So naturally, as, uh, you know, pride, 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 I am... I hopped up almost like a gazelle, you know, kind of going, you oh, you know, as you do, you know, yeah. And, you know, you look in the mirror and you're like, oh, okay, this is, this is, uh, you know, not good. Uh, but at that time, the swelling hadn't really risen to the extent or the bruises hadn't appeared and it was a cut and a cut. So then I took Did a bit it of... Did it hurt? It did. But I think when sometimes something like hurts that bad, I don't know, do people find... It is literally just a wall of pain or blankness or no. It's really hard to explain. Um, Could you so, tell from the other people at the at the barbecue? Could you see their faces? Were they shocked? Well, yeah, of course. But it was kind of a naturally that you know the pride takes over and you hop up and you're like, oh, again. 
and other people don't want to make a big thing of it or anything like that because you're kind of going, oh, well, you know, it'll be fine kind of thing. And then... That's so funny, that moment, isn't it? Because actually, the, and there's somebody eventually will go, no, I, I think we need to do something here. I think we need to, I don't think this is good. You know, th- there is that moment as well where you realise, oh, this mightn't be just nothing. Exactly. Like, and it, it was that. And then I got an, I took a bit of a rest. Then I decided to go to the hospital, got an Uber. Oh, you stayed at the at the barbecue? You didn't uh, go just home. for yeah. some time. I, stay, I stayed there and then, you know, kind of sitting, resting, kind of processing all that. And then, and then I got an Uber and then went to the hospital. Alone? Was there somebody with you? I did go alone because again, it was pride going, no, I'll go and I'll do, you know, and I kind of, I text my mother in the, in oh, the, in the cab. The and I, I, I know. <laughs> but at that stage, again, it was just a really strange thing physically mm. that the extremity of what it was, wasn't fully present. Of course. And then when I got to the hospital and then I was sitting there after time, it, it, it was interesting. I was actually thinking about this in the way here. When I sent that, ini- like, that initial picture to my mother, it was vastly different to the one I sent a couple hours later in the hospital as to what it looked like. Yeah. Because, you know, the bruises were there now. You know, there was eye swelling. It was all just packed, you know, and also kind of been faced with the questions of like a doctor looking at me was like, your nose is definitely broken. Like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't kind of, she could see that like immediately. um, You know, so then that moment of sitting in a hospital waiting area alone in a city that is not your own and kind of that moment of what has just happened and that interesting, like that interesting thing of where does your mind wander when you waste, just sitting, waiting, feeling like you're in a body that's not your own. And yeah, that was the eventual inspiration for writing How to Fall Flat in Your Face, uh, my debut play in One Woman Show. But it took a lot of reflection and time to get to that point. So <laughs> you're obviously feeling very vulnerable sitting there waiting. Are you, you can, you're in pain. Uh, have you looked in the mirror at this stage? Can you see the swelling happening? Are you aware of how bad your injuries are? Yeah, it was it, it was when I took, uh, after some time in the hospital, when I took another picture that I went, uh, you know, and also starting to see in other people's eyes, like health professionals uh, and medical professionals, seeing their reaction and also seeing the reaction of people around you. Oh, you as this was kind of rising, I was kind of going, you poor uh, thing, it's awful. You know? yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Like people are shocked looking at you. Yeah, and also like a million stories that they are putting on what happened and really? stuff. Really? Yeah, I think so. Like, I mean, like I think when you know, the pain is written all over your face, literally. Of course, naturally, people around you, not necessarily in a judgmental way, maybe in a judgmental way, but they are going to put those stories on you, you know. Like and, what? Um, well, I think, I suppose, you know, uh, have you been attacked? Um, were you drunk? Were you... Uh, Which is probably the first two questions probably people Probably the think. first two. Yeah. yeah, I think the first two, you know, and both of those kind of sitting in a space and being like that that's kind of being put on you is stressful. It's a, but in all honesty, like in, you know, that's kind of reflection afterwards thinking, is that what people were thinking? But at the time, you know, realising the severity of what had happened and that, re- that penny really dropping sitting in, in that waiting area. I was going into full numb zone, you know, yeah. like a little bit of shock. Of shock, you know, um, because you kind of get up, you, you get, you hop up like the gazelle, and you run. You know, oh yeah, and then you actually sit alone with your own thoughts and go, "What has just happened?" Um, so yeah, 
and then obviously like the healing process past that point and kind of going can I work did you I leave so did, did you, you, know, you left hospital that night um, did you did they give you, give you painkillers what was there, there I mean you obviously you fell really hard and so yeah. you're, you're, you, you had very extreme injuries on your your face really you broke your nose I mean it was just as bad as it could get really with you know without knocking you completely unconscious so did they what did they say to you to to start healing yeah so basically what it was was you know they gave me like they gave me painkillers when I was leaving uh, but the main thing was was about my nose had to be reset so it was so they have to allow all the swelling to go down before they can do that so then I was back a week after that then and the swelling hadn't fully gone down yet. So then I had to wait another week and then the nose had to be reset, which is essentially breaking the nose again back Your into mother place. must have been really worried, was she? Yeah, no, she was. You know, it was kind of a thing of, should I come over? Should you come back? You know, I, I, I have four sisters and, you know, they were on the phone and been like, will I come over? Will I do this? Will I do that on the phone? You know, some making jokes, I'm trying to break the ice, you know, <laughs> yeah. all the things that sisters do. <laughs> uh, but I was kind of, I was, again, you know, even at that point I was sore and I was embarrassed and I was concerned and I was angry that this had happened, you know, and so quickly having been there. But it was like, I was still really adamant on, no, I'm going to stay here you know I'm not going to run home I'm not going to do that you know so but inside did you think oh I've just moved here to next break next chapter of my life and that this happens oh uh, yeah no totally like it was just you know yeah it, it was kind of <laughs> like at the time it was because I was so focused on the physical of that bit healing then the healing of my mind came after that and ultimately it became a moment of massive change in my life of how I viewed myself, how I viewed beauty, how I viewed, you know, my career and what I wanted my uh, next steps to be. Okay, go back, go back, go back. Break all them down for me. Go back, that's brilliant. Okay, so you, (laughs) so you, you you have a horrific facial injury. You're a a strikingly uh, beautiful woman and and you're an actor, so commenting your appearance is safe. (laughs) Uh, uh, You know, but your physicality is so important in your job. That's the point, right? And you're thinking, I've known this structure all my life, which is, it's completely recovered, by the way, just so listeners can, can be reassured as well. But what did you start to question about yourself, about your values, about your beauty, about your career? Like, it made you think of, question everything. Well, yeah, you know, the immediate like fright of going and this happened so quickly, which I was kind of surprised about of kind of sitting at home in bed and looking the way that I looked and being really sore, like you can't move anything and eat properly and all of those things because everything's just kind of stuck. Um, But I thought, oh, I can't self-tape for film now. I can't audition. And I was kind of going that's a really big leap to be thinking about those things. You know what I mean? As in, like, that's immediately where my mind was going. So I kind of had to question, you know, really what? Well, do you know what, for anybody going for a job, it's, a, it's yeah. you're nervous, you're tense, you're worried. And especially with the new self-tape phenomena where you can get self-tape. I mean, lots of people are running interviews on, you know, oh, online, on Zoom, on Teams or whatever, way, on FaceTime, whatever. So your appearance comes straight into check straight away for, for many, many jobs, right? Of course, so you're, And you're yeah. particularly questioning how am I going to do this now? Yeah, no, as in I wouldn't have been able to. So that was, you know, you know, uh, my best friend came over when, when, when I when I got back to the house because uh, she'd actually just uh, come over to London herself and <laughs> happened to be there that day. So it was great. So she came TG. to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and she's also an actor and she was like, Katie, you know, you can't, you, you know, you can't obviously audition or anything. Ever. But already I was going, 
oh, but I, you know, that would be awful and that will really like throw me off track. And da, da, da. that's what I was thinking in my head. But then I kind of zoned in after a couple of days going, that's not what's important right now. You need to physically heal. You know, you are injured. Your body is not well, you know, and that needs to be the priority. But that wasn't the priority in my mind in the initial. So I was going, where is your mind at? Wow. You know, OK, OK, I get you. That's very interesting, but also very insightful of you to see that and realize that because you're in shock. You're entitled to question, oh, how am I going to continue? You're entitled to feel like that. But then you realize, well, hang on, what's more important? Yeah, basically, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, and I mean, uh, I, I, I like to work in shows that are very physical oftentimes, you know, with um, really like physical and exciting like specifications for particular roles. So I keep myself fit. Yoga is a daily practice in my life. I couldn't do any of that. Of course. So like all of that, because even simple things like you think, yeah, you could probably do maybe a bit of yoga. It's just your face. But the pressure you put in your arms travels through to your face and all of this. So <laughs> it was kind of like all of that kind of like breaking down. Uh, but my immediate thing was I couldn't audition. I couldn't do a tape and stuff. And it was like, get your body well, you know. And then once I had to just kind of leave all that go. Then once I fully came out of it and, you know, had some perspective on the situation, I went, oh, something's actually shift it now in my mind so because just before that though you, you it would have really impacted your confidence as well right because you're wondering what's the avenue out of this did it impact your confidence yeah oh yeah for sure like I mean when the bruises started to go down and the swelling started to go down and I called my agent and she was incredibly supportive oh good um you know and was just gutted for me you know I just moved I just you know made this decision you know so you know she was like get well you know and and was brilliant and was kind of on to me you know, um, during the week as I was like healing and everything and during the weeks ahead. But then once the swelling and the bruising went and it was kind of just just an out of line nose, very out of line nose at that point because it hadn't yet been reset, a tape came in and I was like, oh, maybe I'll just do it. But like literally that What's tape. That, a tape came in. A self-tape, yeah. And I was like, would I do it? I was like, you know, and, you know, my agent was like, if you want to, it's up to you, you know, if you feel comfortable, you know. So I did it, but like, oh my, I, I like, you know, you could really see because actually, strangely, once the swelling went down, it was like my nose was really, you know, over to one side. It was very clear something okay. was out of line yeah. before it was reset, you know. So it was so strange doing that tape. And then once it was reset and then I was strapped up for a couple of weeks once it was reset um, and when that strap came off I was so nervous I was like I is it going to be the same and I wasn't sure that it was you know and I sent a picture to my mother and again my sisters oh it's and perfect they, yeah and they were like no it's it is and it, you know and I was like no but it's not and, you know and then I went into a series of time where I was like comparing old pictures with now and I was oh, looking and I was looking and I was looking and this kind of went on again. I would do tapes and I'd see it. And if it was a certain light, I could see, you know. And then that was then a process kind of realizing that actually there isn't much of a difference. Everyone was supportive and saying, I can't see it, but I could see it, you know. So then there was you learning had, that came out of that. And then you had this moment of acceptance. Yeah. And what was that? Tell me, describe that for me. And then tell me, you, that, that, did that influence the writing of the play? Yeah, so I I was thinking about, you know, because it was really on my mind and I was thinking about, you know, the only way would be 
reconstructive surgery if you really want to like fully align it or whatever. And then I went and I had that proper meeting with a doctor and I walked out of the room that day having heard what the realities of that was. And I just said, that's not for me. I don't want to do that. And then it was just like, I just like drew a line under it after that point. Um, and it was from then that I just accepted it. I don't look at pictures like that anymore. Uh, I don't kind of compare and go, is it the same? Or I look like that then. That I, and It's one of those things where you kind of, after time you go, oh, that's gone. I didn't realize when that stress or anxiety left, but it did at a point. So you, you, you decided to turn it into creativity and you wrote a play called how to fall flat on your face. Yes, so tell I me did. About the play. Yeah, so the play is a one-woman show. It's my debut play as a writer. Congratulations! Thank you so much. Every cloud. Every cloud. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I started writing it in the first lockdown. I've always wanted to write, but with doing gigs as an actor, sometimes find that space is quite tricky, or at least I found that quite tricky. Um. So yeah, I I, I had this idea for this play. The first draft was called How to Become a Superhero in Seven Days. And then after a couple of drafts, I was like, really, what are you writing about here, Katie? (laughs) And now it's called How to Fall Flat in Your Face. Um, So it premiered in Waterford's Gartelaine Arts Centre last year. We had wonderful support from the Arts Council and have an incredible creative team. Um, Our director is Luke Kernahan, who I worked with in the Abbey before on a show called Let the Right One In. And he is a great friend and an incredible creative. And we've created a visually exciting piece of theatre that is set in a hospital waiting area. And the lead character is called Anna. She has fallen flat on her face and the audience sit with her in this built hospital waiting area and we get to see her mind unravel and see how she fell flat on her face. I watched the uh, the little promo you have on YouTube. It's brilliant. Brilliant. Oh, now people you. can see it. It's going to be playing in the Project Arts Centre in Dublin from the 7th to the 18th of November, correct? That's it. Yeah, it's coming up. Actor Katie Honan on the 9 o'clock show and from falling flat on your face to dealing with back pain, GP Dr Maura Finn joined Claire Byrne to chat about some that affects most of us at some stage in our lives, back pain. This is such a common problem, but, but yeah. how common is it? Is it actually? Well, it's estimated that about 80% of us will experience back pain at some stage. And I, I'd imagine it's probably nearly 100% really. It's so common that it's nearly considered a normal um, human, part of the normal human experience or condition. It's severity, obviously, and what brings it on and and how long it would last for are different uh, for different people. And that's where you can people can run into trouble. But everybody experiences back pain at some stage. And for most people, and I know there are instances where people might have had an accident and they're dealing with problems uh, resulting from that. But for most people, back pain is down to wear and tear, is it? It is. So if we can break it down, there's kind of acute back pain. Acute be always refers in the medical terms to something that's new and sudden. So an acute back pain is, is often due to some injury or a pull or a drag or something of that nature. Um, chronic back pain is where the condition has gone on for more than two to three weeks. And um, it is almost always down to wear and tear. And it's funny, the, the we, we frequently... Um, organize MRIs and um, radiological interventions these days to kind of because they're available to us so we can so we get kind of images of backs 
But it's estimated that like 80 to 90 percent of people ha over the age of 60 have wear and tear. But there's only a certain percentage of them have symptoms associated to it. So it's really hard to pinpoint whose wear and tear is causing pain and why. Mm -hmm. And that, that can be, make it very difficult in the diagnostic kind of process. So if you're dealing with uh, acute pain, so new and sudden pain as you assessed it there, the first thing I suppose you need to do when it comes to treatment is to relieve those symptoms, right? Yeah. So what happens with any back pain, with acute pain, when it happens, even if, if it's a, a disc, which is not that common, or muscle or tendon or ligament, you have this kind of cascade of symptoms that happens where you have a release of chemical substances that stimulates the nerves. The nerves then cause inflammation and pain around the back. That causes spasm of the muscles of the back because your back is trying to protect the spinal um, cord, which is going through the center of it. So the spine is there to actually protect your, your spinal cord. And that, so that is kind of cascade of um, spa, muscle spasm and pain is very difficult to manage. So in the very immediate terms, we, what we do is you try and minimise the pain. You do treat it with painkillers, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory painkillers, or sometimes things even stronger, but only for short periods of time. And you also sometimes use muscle relaxants to kind of stop the spasm. And that's for a two, three day period. And then you kind of, um, you're talking about, um, massage, physiotherapy, if it kind of goes on a little bit longer, um, gentle exercising, stretching your back. And that's how you manage acute back pain. And in most situations, it resolves itself in two to three weeks. Mm -hmm. But then if it doesn't, you're looking at chronic back pain. Yeah, and that's that's a much it's a completely different animal, really. And it's so hard and it's a cause of huge, um, you know, it's a, it's a cause of um, lost time off work functional activities, you know, your normal activities, being able to kind of manage home and work and everything else. It's very, very difficult. And sometimes it is kind of met with derision by some people. You know, it's very hard to actually quantify back pain um, and how much of an impact it has in somebody's life. So we have to take the person at face value. Um, if it is chronic, we kind of consider it's gone on for more than two to three weeks. You try not in that situation to use medications if you can, because we're talking about a long term process and all medication, even the simplest aspirin and paracetamol has, are associated with side effects. So you try and manage it with increased exercise, increasing the blood flow through the area. So that's increasing the exercise, maybe massage. If you're smoking, stop smoking. Um, general lifestyle activities have a big effect. And the management of chronic back pain is really a very holistic management it should be it, it's about the psychological effects it's about the work effects it's about the financial effects and it's about kind of managing your lifestyle to try and um, improve the way you can actually function with your back pain. Yeah, and you mentioned exercise there and I'm sure you've seen this in your own practice as a GP where you're advising people to exercise and they might say to you but I can't walk two steps without severe pain. Yeah, and, and in that situation, what you're doing, if they, if they can't walk two steps, then there's a different problem. You know, when we're talking about chronic back pain that we're managing, they usually are functioning to some degree. If somebody can't walk two steps, they're in an acute crisis or an acute on chronic situation and they may need painkillers in that situation. But also we need to investigate somebody like that. You know, not all back pain is benign and I don't want to frighten anybody because the majority of it is benign. But we do look for things that could be worrying. If somebody has back pain, 
for the first time over the age of 50, we look into that. If you have a history of cancer, we need to look into that. If you have a temperature, if you're unwell with your back pain and it's new, we need to investigate it. So, you know, not all back pain is equal from that mm -hmm. point of view. So but I'm talking about the people who actually can manage, but they're achy and they suffer at night and they can, you know, they come home from a drive and they're really, really stiff getting out of the car. These are the people that need to kind of go into kind of like stretching exercises, exercise, um, increasing the blood flow um, and, and obviously postural changes as well that will actually help manage the pain. And they mightn't feel like it. They mightn't feel like they can do that. But you're saying that it's a really important part of the treatment plan. Yeah, it really is important. And I, and I get why they mightn't feel like it. And, it's, you know, that's the other side of it, the psychological trauma of having chronic pain. Chronic pain wears you down. Um, that kind of have an effect on your mood. And of course, it won't make you feel like trying to kind of like, OK, I'll try again. But un unfortunately or fortunately, the best way forward with any chronic symptoms is to try and work through a lifestyle approach as opposed to going with medication. Because you cannot take any medication long term safely when we're talking about painkillers. Mm -hmm. Without some sort of a, a side effect, as you say. Now, I have lots exactly. of questions coming in, so let's get okay. to some of them now. Uh, this one, I've suffered with my lower back right in the middle of my pelvis since having my children. Some days it's so bad I struggle to walk. I'd love to pay privately for a scan, but I don't know what to ask for. Any ideas? Okay, well, first of all, to get a scan, which are more and more frequently available these days, and that's a good thing in some ways, um, you will need to be referred by a general practitioners. So what you do is you go in and you discuss your symptoms with your GP and then the direction of or the, how that will be addressed or what will be requested um, will be decided by the GP. I'd imagine in that situation, it's sacroiliac lower lumbar sacral spine that would be um, visualized by MRI. And what will probably be seen is chronic degenerative change that we all have as we get older. Whether or not it's, it's actually responsible for the pain that that person is having is difficult to say. Women very frequently get pain in that, that exact area, lower lumbar spine is just kind of where your, your pelvis meets your spine and the sacroiliac area is where your sacral iliac is that kind of the, the span of the pelvis meets the uh, spine. And that's particularly with women, because we often, do you know the way we went around for years with a child on your hip and you had your hip crocked up a little bit, yeah. you know? Um, so that's actually one of the reasons why you'll get sacroiliac um, pain. It is chronic and it's um, usually ligament, soft tissue, maybe degenerative change as well. It can be very, very difficult to treat. So having imaging does not often give you the answer you want to have. Very, very frequently we do the imaging to make sure that there isn't a nerve that's been compressed so that which would actually kind of suggest that you need to have a surgical intervention. But more and more these days we don't um, the, the orthopedic and neurosurgeons do not want to have a surgical intervention. They will inject areas of the spine to see if that will help with symptoms much more frequently than they'll actually go into a surgical um area like that sounds very bad I mean that person is struggling to mm. walk so that's a very serious situation but in general terms sacroiliac problems if you do some strength training in, in that area or is that the best way to treat it in some cases most often it is and physiotherapy is, is really the the, the, the go-to area in this and they're so expert in 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 giving people kind of um, exercises they can do at home and kind of daily exercises and Pilates, yoga, swimming, all sorts of uh, general gentle exercises that move the muscles without putting pressure on the spine itself really do help. Um, 
But yes, I mean, any person can get to the point where they can't walk and they become quite debilitated. However, that's a real cascade as well in itself, because if you're not walking, your your degeneration is going to uh, increase. Your muscles and ligaments and soft tissue are going to function less. So you're actually into a worse situation. So it is one of these situations you have to really push yourself. Okay, I have another one here. I've been diagnosed with severe arthritis in my lower spine. So this is between L4 and L5. This person Mm. says they're in their early 60s and would like to know what's the best non-invasive treatment. The best non-invasive treatment would be exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about um, exercise to the point that you can actually manage it Um, and a good exercise program that is designed for you personally by a physiotherapist is the ideal way to go. Um, other way then acupuncture can be very useful because there is specific point um, neuro- neurological pain in some situations. Massage is incredibly good because it increases the blood flow to the area, which increases healing, obviously. Make sure your lifestyle in general is good. Make sure your posture is good. Make sure your, com- your bed is comfortable. You're, you're sitting comfortably when you're at work. All of these things. Then if that's not working, having a, an opinion from an orthopedic surgeon as to whether um, a, a CAT scan guided or ultrasound guided injection into an area may help can be useful and it's very often diagnostic they'll inject an area and see if you get pain relief if you don't we know it's not that it's not the mm. right course is that of a steroid you. injection you're talking about it usually is a steroid but it's also mixed with a local anesthetic so you get instant relief from the local anesthetic so it actually if that works you go okay that's where the point of um, pain is because diagnosis of back pain is a tricky situation as well so um but we always, always try and do the kind of the, the non-invasive and lifestyle changes first and foremost. Here's an interesting one now that I see in front of me. This listener says, I've been scourged by back pain for the past 25 years. I have it at various times every day. Is there such a thing as psychosomatic pain? And the reason the person says that is because it comes on if I'm anxious or stressed, but also for mechanical reasons. For example, if I'm stooping down, it's all on one side of the spine. It seems to originate in my neck. If it's all in my head, the pain in the back is very real. That's a really well put question because that person is basically explaining exactly what can happen in some situations. There's a, what we know is that there can be central sensitization. So that's where, you know, so back, if you have a pain somewhere, you're, you say you banged your big toe, you'll have a pain in the toe. That's because the nerve in the toe feeds back to your brain and tells your brain there's, there's pain in my toe or there's trauma to my toe. Um, in central sensitization, that those nerves in the brain are a little overexcited and they constantly fire and tell you that there is pain in that area, even though the original trauma may be gone. Um, and that can kind of increase um, your reaction to the pain as well. And that was Dr. Maura Finn on Today with Claire Byrne. Well, that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. As always, you can listen back to any of the shows across Radio 1 on rte.ie slash radio or on the RTE Radio app. So from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening and take care.